So we're, we're having this conversation for a few weeks about how words create worlds. And so last week, we're, we're journeying through Genesis and, and exploring the fact that there is so much life there. And, and part of the reason that there's so much life to find there as disciples of, of Jesus is because of the reason that the book of Genesis was created. And, and sometimes we miss that reason because sometimes we read the, the story of Genesis and we think... We think that the point is to figure out um, when and how, okay? And we think that, that is, that's the overall point. Um, but unfortunately, it's almost like asking where the Good Samaritan's money came from that he helped the guy on the side of the road in the hospital or what his mom's name was. Because we're asking a question that maybe wasn't the primary intent of what's being told. And so the primary intent of what's being told in the book of Genesis is why and by whom. Uh-oh. There we go. I'll get that one right. So primarily when we look at the story of Genesis, the story, the, the questions that we tend to ask these days, when the debates rage and everything like that, uh, among like creationists and atheists and everything like that, those weren't questions that other people were asking at the time that this story was circulated. They weren't even close because nobody said there wasn't a God. Everybody said that there was a God. So the question was, who's God's right and what's your God like? And so this story emerged among many other stories. And we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to go over it again. But specifically some Babylonian stories and some, some other stories where the gods created the world through acts of violence and, and cosmic conflict. And that was the foundation of the earth. And people became kind of the minions of the gods to kind of slave over them. So we looked at some of the, the stories last week from the Enuma Elish, which is one of the ancient Babylonian texts. And we said, wow, how different the story of Genesis is for us when we see that, that instead of God needing a war to begin, God actually creates by the power of a word, by, by creative love, is the foundation of the world, not by an act of cosmic violence. And then people are made, we're told, in the first chapter in God's image. And that word for image is a word that... that um, joined up with the image of what a king would do. When a king would conquer a land, he would set up statues all around that land when he went back to his palace so that when people would walk around, they would constantly be looking at, um, at, these, at these statues. They'd be looking at the statues of this king and they would be reminded of who was in charge. <laughs> and and the, the reason that they were alive was because, because of the benevolence of their king. Now often what ends up happening is that uh, the, those kings were hardly benevolent, right? They were dictators and rulers. But what the, the story of Genesis is, is that people are created in the image of God to be God's statues in the world. So that when people look around, they look and they see the tselem, which is the Hebrew word, the tselem of God. And they notice that when they look at people, they are reminded of the nature and character of God. Boy, we screwed that up a bit, but that's Okay. Because that's not the end of the story. So, so we just looked at Genesis 1 last week. We're going to go back. And so, so last week we looked at the fact that words create worlds. And God spoke words. And we have this written living word in, in the scriptures. We have the word of God. And then we have the living word, Jesus. And those things all point to a different world. A different way of seeing things than anybody else had ever seen them before. And that is significant. Because that's the story. This is, Genesis is a meaning-making document. Okay? 
regardless of what else you do or don't want to believe about it, and it's okay to have various viewpoints on all of this. The point is that it is talking about meaning of life. What, is, there, is there a reason that all of this is and what's behind it? And so God is this incredibly beautiful creator who creates people endowed with incredible meaning. So we're going to look more deeply into that and we're going to look at the different words that God speaks through Genesis. Not literally, maybe, but, uh, but some of the concepts that make worlds for us. So... Now you're all caught up, but seriously, if you want to dive into that next week just a little bit more, um, then please, please listen to, uh, to what we talked about um, a week ago. So, as we look at the, uh, the first chapter of Genesis again, um, one of the interesting things is that when people are created, um, there's all of these, God, God creates the animals, and he creates the fish and the birds, and, and, and the world teems with them. They're just full and then he creates people. And, and when he creates people, the world's not full of them. Not, not, not fully. It's, it's funny because they're given tasks right off the bat. And, and so instead of filling the world with people, we get this, this story of a, a group or a, a, a pair of people that have been created. And, and what they're told in t- verse 22, it's the first uh, commandment. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. And it's the, apparently that was the one thing that God thought he could entrust us with. Um, because everything else, for all the animals, he, he just, the, the world teams with it. He's like, I'll leave that one up to you. So we, we've done fairly well uh, with the first command of the Bible. Um, the ones that come after it are, are more of a, of a challenge, maybe. But, uh, but so in the middle of, of chapter one, there's this phrase. Actually, you know what? Let's do chapter two first, since we looked at chapter one last time. So... Here's what we're going to do. I'm not going um, to put it all up on the screen because I just want to tell the story a little bit and then we'll dive into why this is so important. Uh, so, so in chapter 2, it starts with verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth and, uh, and when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. By the way, I have to say that if you notice this, it seems like there's a restart. So you get the first chapter of God creating all these things and then in chapter 2, verse 4, you get... This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and you get a whole fresh start. Um, there's two reasons for this, and then there's one that I have no idea if it's a reason, but I think it ought to be a reason for us. The, the, first, the first reason is that they want to amplify the story of Adam and Eve. They want to amplify the story of humans, because humans are given a day, much like everything else in the first chapter. But in the second chapter, it's all about the people, because people are created special. Okay, so there's this, this beautiful image that, that we're intended to look into more deeply. But if you notice, and some of you may want to debate this, and that's okay, but there's some details that seem a little bit different in terms of the certain order here and there. And you're like, huh, it almost seems like this is a slightly different account of the same story. But let me tell you that if you think the point is to get all of the facts perfectly and scientifically, you're going to run into some problems with this. I'm not arguing for um, the fact that everything is complete metaphor, but I'm, I'm saying that very seriously, maybe the reason that we get this secondary telling is so that we don't get hung up on the wrong details. There's a lot of silence right now. I have no idea what you're thinking. Um, but, but we need to understand the story is about why. Why are people the way they are? What, who, is, who is God about? And how did this all come into existence? And what's the nature of the relationship between God and his people? 
It's not what time of day did Eve take a bite of the apple. We, we, just, we have to ask the right questions so that we can answer and find the meaning that the writers were intending to write to people. So, okay, here we go. No shrub had appeared on earth and no plant had sprung up. Just enjoy the story. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man. The word, the Hebrew word for a man is ha-adam. All right? And so, so the word Adam means humanity. And, uh, and, and so the Lord God, at this point, it's not a proper noun. Later on, they, they turn into a proper noun. But right now, it says, the Lord God formed Adam, an Adam, a human, a humanity. Eve's name means life. It's so beautiful. Um, later on, we don't find that out till the end of chapter 3. Uh, but so, so anyways, and how does God form this man? From the dust of the ground. It's so beautiful that in this story, we are not separate from the created world. We are connected to it in a unique way. God takes earth. Brian Zond says that human beings are soil with a soul. Sometimes we tend to look around at the world and because we're very different than animals, and we should be, we forget that we're actually totally connected to all of the created world, that the story is a reminder that we are not so separate that we have nothing to do with what came first. This changes how we view so many things, as we're going to hear in a minute. And how does, how does life happen? God breathes. We just sang two songs about the breath of God. The word breath in Hebrew is the same word for spirit. The same word for Holy Spirit in the New Testament is the same transliterated word for God breath in the Old. So, so do you understand all of this connectedness? How beautiful is that? God literally breathes his spirit that is holy and unique and set apart into people. God breathes his Holy Spirit into people because people are different and set apart from the rest of all creation. Because they reflect his image in a way that nothing else does. I want to talk about this later, but do you see, do you see, how, do you see what happens when we buy into what, we call worm, what I call worm theology? Worm theology means that when we look at ourselves, all we can see is how that saved a wretch like me. I love that song, by the way. But that's not the whole story. We are not just wretched. At least not according to Psalm 8. You've made us a little lower than God. Some translations that aren't literal say than the angels. That's not right. You've made us a little lower than God and crowned us with glory and compassion. You can have humility by being so in awe of how much value God's given us, not how little we have. And one elevates all of humanity around us too and helps us see the human dignity and the life in every single person. The other gives us a reason to say, well, you're worthless too if you take it too far. So yes, there are times where we feel unworthy without question, but that's more about our feeling. God's declared differently. I'm preaching now. Here we go. Okay, and so what, what happens is, uh, so, he breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, the Holy Spirit, and the man became a living being. By the way, that's not suggesting that the Holy Spirit is just simply us alive, okay? That's, that's don't take that too far. The Holy Spirit is a part of our Trinitarian understanding, fully God, um, but, but God breathes his spirit into us, and so does Jesus in John twenty twenty. so don't get bent up on that. Okay, um, All right, so the the Lord God planted a garden in the east. So here comes a garden in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. Then God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, beautiful, pleasing to the eye, and good for food. In the middle there were two trees, the tree of life 
and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then he talks about rivers that came watering through it. We're going to breeze through that right now because that's not the point today. And in verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Here's really fascinating things. So, so God creates this beautiful land that he calls good. And then he creates people. But what he tells them to do is to work it. Work it. So interestingly, there's this image that creation is good, but it's not complete. Is that scandalous? He creates creation good, but yet he gives people a task to work it. To do something with it. To move it forward. Maybe because they are the representatives of God and God has desires to use these people to bring about something new. The story of the Bible starts in a garden and it ends in a city. So those of us who have seen the, you know, the funny, what, bumper stickers that say God's original plan was to hang out naked in a garden with, with a bunch of vegetarians, like, that's not the whole story. The whole story is that God desires that people work and do something beautiful and create something beautiful from what has been created because what is in God is in us too. That's what it means to be in the image of God. And so, so anyways, what this does though is it harkens back to a phrase that we have to talk about. If we're going to talk about the fact that God wants to use people to do something, we have to look at the original uh, commandment in, verse one, or in chapter 1 when God, I said, I mentioned the be fruitful and increase in number thing, but then he says, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. So, so there's two words in there that have caused humanity a whole bunch of problems. Um, and so those two words are rule and subdue. Okay? Rule and subdue in chapter 20, or in verse 29 and 28. And so the command to people is rule and subdue. And people have said, yes, thank you, we will. We will rule and we will subdue the earth and we'll do it well. Because we love ruling. Unfortunately, we're not really that good at it most of the time. And so here's what I want to unpack. Uh, what these words are, just real quick. Um, so, so those two words, rule and subdue. The first word, we're actually going to talk about rule first because there's more, there's more references to it in the scriptures. And I'll talk about why this all matters in just a moment. Um, but the reason, the, the, the word for rule is um, radah. Okay, and it's often understood as to suppress and to dominate. Okay, so, so radah means to suppress, to dominate, to rule over in a powerful way. And that's literally what the word means. So there's no like, but this word actually means something else. No, that's what it means. It means to dominate intense, with intensity. But here's the thing. Every single time that the word is used like that, it's used uh, in a negative sense in the scriptures. So when someone rules with with suppressive domination, it's actually called out as not the correct way to rule. And so, so with God, what we see is any time that the word rule is used in conjunction with the kingdom of God, it actually is talking about tending something, caring and leading well. So in Leviticus, we see this example. Leviticus 25 uses Radah. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, because that's what rule assumes. Don't be ruthless. But fear your God, meaning, meaning honor God with the way that you rule and lead. Okay, Ezekiel is a similar thing. Um, Ezekiel is the prophet and he's calling out the fact that some of the leaders of Israel have not been leading with the integrity of God. 
So he calls them on. He says, you eat curds, clothe yourselves with wool. That means, that means you get the best for yourself. But you don't take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So a phrase like that reminds us that any time that we, are, that we hear the word rule in the way of God, it should be the opposite of harsh and brutal. And this does not just go for people because the calling here is about the earth. And so the idea maybe that we get a, a better glimpse of in Psalm, Psalm 72, David is praying for Solomon. And we get this glimpse when he says he's praying for God to help Solomon rule well. And he's getting a vision of what Solomon would look like when he rules well. He will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He'll rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Uh, Biblical scholar Tim Gettert says that rule, radah, when used in, in uh, the Genesis story, actually implies justice and mercy. It implies offering help and protection and creating shalom, which is the Bible's word for wholeness and wellness. In every way. True peace among all living things. So the true sense of what we're getting at is actually not about harshness. It's about care. Deep care. Which, once we get rule right, then we can understand subdue, which is the word kabosh. And that often means employ force to control and bind up. And that's what it means often. Except for in the scriptures, as we look and learn, and we'll learn from Jesus at the end, uh, the idea of subdue, subdue the earth, is actually talking about working and controlling everything that works against God's shalom. So when we see injustice, we work to subdue it, to control it, to limit it, to stop it. When we see anything that breaks down uh, the beauty of what God has created and spoken to be, we work against anything that would tear shalom apart. Okay? So, so the idea of subduing the earth is not saying control it for your own gain. It's saying stop anything that might destroy what is good and beautiful. Okay? So, so this is how we can start to understand how that is so consistent then with the, the Genesis 2 passage about work and care and tend the earth. All right? So, okay. All that to say, um, subduing the earth is about calming it down from the harmful directions that it might go in. All right? And, uh, and so before we move on to how that plays out in the rest of the world and through the lens of Jesus, I want to hang in Genesis a little bit. Ian, come on up. Um, and I want to talk about that first calling to Adam and Eve, which was about the earth and about the garden. Um, I want you to hear from Ian because uh, I know he has spent a lot of time reflecting on all of this and uh, developing really, really helpful insights to both um, how we see ourselves and our connection to the earth as God's people. And his career is deeply connected in this, uh, to, to all of this as well. Ian? Here you go. Yeah, totally. And uh, so, so Ian, why don't you share, what do you do for a living? So I work with the state of Delaware in their Division of Climate, Coastal, and Energy, um, which is under DENREC, Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Control. Um, but uh, what I specifically do is I link uh, environmental science with uh, community engagement and communications. That sounds like a lot of complicated <laughs> words. What's that look like in real life? So what that looks like is essentially making um, the environment relevant to people's everyday lives. Okay. 
Yeah. That's great. That's helpful for me. I don't know if it's helpful for you. <laughs> Ian and I talk frequently about this, and I'm still not exactly sure always. I, I'm finding out his, his influence is a bigger and bigger tent than, than what I tend to put it in. So, all right, Ian, how do you see the whole story of what we're looking at in Genesis 1 and 2? How do you see that kind of affecting how we view the earth and our responsibility and role in it? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time uh, reading through Genesis 1, not only just out of my own personal interest, but also part of my studies. Um, I had hmm. the opportunity to go to a Christian college and uh, be put under an advisor who really made us think seriously about uh, environmental ethics and how that relates to our Christian faith. Um, and I think oftentimes when you look at Genesis 1, there are two things that really um, stand out, if you dig deeply into it, that are not oftentimes... Uh, emphasized within the Christian church. I think the first is that when you see God declaring every single part of creation good, um, you see this understanding of intrinsic value, which means value being assigned to something that was created simply because, simply because the person that is endowing it with value is saying it is good. Um, and I think that really contrasts a lot with how we as humans view, oftentimes view um, different parts of I guess, non-human creation, yeah. which is in terms of it being of utilitarian value hmm. or... Yeah, it's um, only good beautiful. if it's beneficial to me. Beneficial to me, whether that's like aesthetic, like, oh, you know, it's beneficial because I think it's beautiful or, you know, I can use this to make such and such or, you know, it tastes good, it's good, it's good food, so that therefore it's of value to me. Hmm. So I think that's, that's definitely one thing. And I think the second thing is that, um, as you were talking about earlier, you know, we as humans are very strongly connected to our environmental system. And I think oftentimes, you know, not necessarily any fault of our own, because we, you know, most of us don't work in cultivating the land, whether that's working in the environmental field or working as, for example, farmers or, you know, caretakers of natural areas. We so we're less and less connected. We, we're with less the and land. less connected just with a lot of the modern technology in our world. <laughs> but if you look at the way, you know, the, as you were describing, the, the Genesis story plays out. Um, you know, God's first command is to care for the earth. So um, I think those are two just big ideas that we, we you know, in modern times uh, do not always think about, is that one, we're connected as part of a larger system of the environment, but also all of non-human creation has value simply because God gave it value to it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of asked this, but what, what do you think, is there any other things that we need to notice in this story or that we might be missing that you say, don't, don't miss this or, or that, that, that I might look over and not see it because it's not a part of my daily life as much as somebody else? Sure. Um, I think, well, I guess, do you mind if I dig a little bit into do Genesis? Whatever. Okay, yeah, so I think it. one of the things that... Uh, oftentimes, you know, all of us who have heard the Genesis story over and over again, we think, oh, well, God called, you know, non-human creation good, and he called humans very good. But if you actually, mm -hmm. like, dig deeper into it, what God calls very good is all of creation looking at, stepping back and seeing it at all. Yeah, and, like a painting. Yes. And, Finished. And what, and God says uh, all of creation is very good once he puts humans in charge of caring for all creation. <laughs> so it's really <laughs> interesting when you, when you talk about... Um, you know, Jesus being the example of, like, uh, of, you know, uh, taking care of all, you know, you know, God, uh, all of creation coming through Jesus, you mm -hmm. know, being, being the word, um, and, you know, leading in that ex uh, example, and, you know, us being God's representatives here on earth um, uh, as part of that very first command to 
um, you know, care for the earth. Um, it's that partnership and that responsibility as along with our um, presence within all of uh, creation that makes it very good. Hmm. Yeah, and so uh, we had mentioned at some point that, uh, that unfortunately many of us have been connected with a faith tradition that has kind of devalued this a little yeah. bit um, and, and maybe looked at things and said that, that our earth is, is slightly less important right. or anything like that. And so we had just talked a little bit about um, Romans, Romans 8 Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and a few a few other things, but do you yeah. want to just kind of riff for sure. a minute on, yeah. on that idea of what we might be be missing? Yeah. So I think um, having grown up in a number of evangelical traditions, there's this idea of you know, not only the rule and subdue idea, but you know when uh, when we hear about a new uh, new heaven and earth, that all of earth is just going to burn, so there's no reason to care for it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really misguided. And I think. Uh, there are two passages that I really go back to all the time. The first is Colossians, in Colossians 1. Um, I'll read verses 15 through 17 as well as 19 through 20. And it says, and you might have heard this before, you know, he is the image of the invisible God. They're talk, uh, talking about um, Jesus here, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or, dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him. And for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Um, and then jumping to verse 19, for it was uh, the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things himself, having made peace through the blood of his, cro uh, of his cross through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So this is really gives a first glimpse into um, this idea that with uh, Jesus coming in on his, his act on the cross, as well as being resurrected from the dead, you know, he's reconciling and redeeming all things for himself. So that's in Colossians. Um, and then the second one is in, uh, second passage that are, is oftentimes pointed to um, is Romans 8. And let me, I can just turn I to that quickly. That and uh, as you see, what with Keith put up here, um, it's, uh, I'll, I'll just read from the screen. You know, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth uh, comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one that, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation, so again, this is not just humans, right. has been groaning yeah, and that's as... that's what cosmos means. Yeah. And by the way, John, for God so loved the world, that, that word for world is cosmos, and it's undeniably clear that it means the whole of all creation. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Not God so loved people. It's really important. Sorry. No, Go for good. it. So, yeah, it, it says, you know, all of creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So I think this, the, the passage from Colossians 1 as well as this passage from Romans 8 make it very clear that... Um, Jesus' work for reconciliation and redemption applies to all of creation and not just humans. And so to simply, like, you know, you know think and just say, you know, well, when we think about Jesus, all we need to think about is just um, our salvation and, you know, that's it. No, I think we need to think broadly about what does it look like for all of creation to be reconciled yeah. and redeemed. And, and I, I don't know, because I haven't done a deep dive into this specific language, but the idea of waiting it, for the the children of God to be revealed, the creation waits. It, there's almost a sense of 
there's a, what we would call an eschatological approach of one day fullness will come in every way. But there's also this idea that, that our world is longing for Christians to act like Christians toward the whole world. Like the, the world is longing for, for people to take their place as the tselem of God, as the image of God in the world. They're, the creation's waiting for us to step up and honor one another and all of the created world in the way that it's intended to be. And that can inspire us in a, in a beautiful way that, you know, that the world, that the trees, the earth, the, the animals, they're waiting for us to actually act like we are the image bearers of God and care well, care correctly. Um, I think there's beauty in there. I don't know if that's a correct interpretation, but that's what I see in light of all of this when I hear that. Yeah, and I think one of the things that is worth mentioning is that how does this really affect that, how we live in our everyday yeah, lives right. of faith, that's right? That's kind of our last question here. And um, I think just from a big picture of you, you know, we talk about two things. One is looking at creation and understanding creation differently. You know, we talk about seeing intrinsic value in elements of non-human creation. And we talk about humans being a part of, a, you know, uh, seeing ourselves as a larger part of, of the environmental system overall. Yeah, which is really... a just not what we do. Right, like, yes. It's really important <laughs> that we realize that we just don't think about yeah. it. Yeah, so that, that's sort of the foundation. But then, you know, looking deeper into what we believe in terms of God's, you know, God's work here on earth in terms of rede redemption and reconciliation, we start seeing, you know, creation care or, you know, being part of, the, all of creation being part of that redemptive work. Mm -hmm. So it really comes down to the bigger question. Okay, if we believe, if we have those two points of foundation, you know, how are we using that in the way that we look at the world around us and care for it, mm -hmm. just in general? Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the things that for me over the last couple of years I've been thinking about, but I think it's something that we as just Christians overall need to think about too. You know, if, we've, if we see the intrinsic value of creation around us, if we see that um, caring for creation is not only the first command that we were given, but also part of God's bigger redemptive picture, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of that comes down to understanding um, caring for creation is caring for humans as well. Yeah, when you said that to me when we were talking a couple days ago, that was, I think, what struck me as the most profound, that, that when you look at things, you understand how when we care for our earth, we're actually caring for people. More and more we're seeing around our world, there's phrases and, and an understanding, things called, uh, we talk about things that are called environmental racism or environmental poverty. And what that means is that when we disregard certain areas of our environment, when we, when we don't care about trash, then dumps get set up in on the edges of certain communities. And those communities are inhabited by people who do not have the resources to be able to move out. And it drives down the cost um, and the value of their homes. But we also have kids that have a 50% chance higher for asthma because they live in certain areas that they're unable to move out of. So when we talk about things like making wise stewardship choices, we're not just saying because we love our national parks, which I would argue to the death for, but, but it's because we love people and we want to make sure that we are caring. And we have to understand that this is all connected. And, and that's not some kind of... Like, Christians should not let this become just a political argument. <laughs> Christians have to understand that when we, if we want to take actively the call to love and care for the whole world, that part of me loving you is creating an environment and caring for the world around me in a way that just makes sense. Right, Our absolutely. consumption is so yeah. out of control. Yeah, and I think lest you think that when we think about environmental justice or environmental poverty, it's some, you know, somewhere far off. I mean, this is not, and this is everywhere. Um, you <laughs> find, we... Uh, in the work that I do, we talk about environmental justice communities, which is, again, these communities that are overburdened by 
um, uh, environmental pollution or uh, you know health effects and how all that relates. I mean, these these are communities in Wilmington, in in Claymont. Um, you know, these these are our yeah. neighbors. So yeah. this is not not something that's just far away. Hmm. Good stuff. All right, thanks, Ian. Yeah. Um, when we were, you can have a seat, man. Appreciate your insights. When we were talking about uh, about how this can kind of be approached in terms of creation care, Ian and I were batting around the idea that that we can approach all of this with the idea of taming. Um, which is pretty common when we think about ruling. Whoops, that's horrible. Um, let's try this one. Or we can talk about tilling. And so when we think about all of this, there's a way of approaching ruling and subduing the earth that is taming it and controlling it or it's tilling it. And if you notice that taming often comes from the top down. If, if, you've, if you're a gardener, if you try to tame one of your bushes, you, like, you chop it from the top or you cover it or something like that. If you want to till, you work from the ground up, okay? And this is why it's so important to understand that this, this theme of partnership, um, which we are, are talking about, and it took a little bit of time to reveal the word. So we talk about words create worlds from God. So the word that God is speaking to the world to create a world in, in Genesis this week is the word partnership, right? And so, so the idea of, of what it means to be a partner is that the first thing is that we are co-operators in creation. Operators, ors? Someone Google that. Is it E or O? O? How many say O? Okay. Um, so we're co-operators. We're co-operators with God in creation, right? And so, so th there's two other aspects that we're not even going to spend hardly any time on because that's not the point, not because they're unimportant. <laughs> we talk about these in significant ways elsewhere. But the second thing uh, that, that the scriptures talk about in the book of Genesis is, um, is that, that we are, uh, I guess, um, we're co-workers in humanity. And what that means, and I'm only going to hit this briefly. I'm going to hit this really, really briefly. But it's crucially important. Um, okay. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. Nope, wrong one. Let's keep going. I'm just going to tell you if this doesn't happen quickly. There we go. So remember Genesis, God created mankind in the image of God. He created them. There is there is totally clear language here. In male and female, he created them. So God creates males and females in his image, okay? And then later in Genesis 2, um, the story doesn't happen at the same time. Adam's created first. And then uh, God cannot find a suitable helper for him, okay? And the word helper is azer. Now, I can't tell you how many times that has been used as a helpmate. So the woman is the helpmate of the husband. And, and what... Regardless of the intent, what that has led to is extreme devalue and, and at times abuse in relationships between men and women. It's really important that if you want to go down that track, you understand what the word azer means. Okay? It does mean helper. Great. Sidekick, right? Except that in the scriptures, the word azer, that's the only time it's used for a woman. Do you know what the rest of the scriptures use azer as? I'm going to tell you. It's God every other time. 
My father's God was my helper, Azer. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Psalm 33, we wait, for, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our Azer and our shield. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the heaven. Where does my help come from? Where does my, who is my rescuer? So if we really want to go down that road, God says, he looked at the man and he said, who is going to save this guy? And so he created the woman. Who's going to rescue him? He is a mess, as many of us might attest to. But the point is there is no inequality being given by talking about the story of how, how this all came to be and saying that there was no suitable helper. What, we, what he was saying was that the only thing that can truly match in beauty, value, quality for humanity is more humanity. <laughs> Different but equal in the be most beautiful possible way that work together to create the full image of God. There's such beauty in that. So we are co-workers in humanity. And if you wanna, I do a, a seminar on gender roles in the scriptures, if you ever wanna have some dialogue about that and about what we do with, with um, obviously we, we do not here believe that women need to be silent or should be silent in church. I believe that that was a, a specific cultural situation. And so when we talk about that, if you wanna come to that at some point, we have some great dialogue about it and I, and I enjoy that. Okay, and the final thing then is, uh, is when we get to this, this image, we talked about tilling versus taming. And so, so we are co-operators in creation. We are co-workers in humanity. We till with, to encourage from the ground up. We love, we, we, we submit to each other, we encourage one another. Um, but we are also co-conspirators in the kingdom. And what that means is that this idea of caring for all of creation and doing it from the ground up is, is mirrored in the ways that Jesus tells us not just to, create, to, to relate, um, not just the way that God tells us to, to relate to the world, but in the ways that Jesus tells us to relate to one another. So Jesus, you know the words of rule and subdue that we just did? Jesus uses those exact same words in one sentence. Did you know that? Probably not, because I didn't either, but I found out. So let's, let's dive in because it's really, oh, there was one more, sorry. I could go on about the whole Azer thing, but we're going to skip that. All right, so, so listen to me. Jesus says in Matthew 4, come follow me and I will send you out for people. Think about the partnership represented in a statement like that. Think about the partnership represented. I no longer call you servants, but now I call you friends, Jesus says. In, John, in, in chapter 14 of John, Whoever believes in me, trust, the word is active trust, Pastor, will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these. Jesus says, my disciples will, will partner with me in such a way that they'll do even more than I did. Which we're not going to unpack, but what a statement to chew on for a while and figure out. How beautiful. God intends us to partner in such a way that joins his work in the kingdom and moves it forward. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you and you'll be my witnesses in everything all the way to the ends of the earth. There is beauty, beauty, beauty in all of this. And the key of where Jesus specifically talks about this, see if I can find it, is in uh, Matthew 25. I skipped over it earlier. There we go. Or Matthew 20, 25. So the way that we do all of this partnership, the way that we rule and subdue and rule on God's behalf in all of creation. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And the disciples start arguing about who the greatest is. And, and two of them want to rule alongside him. 
And they want to rule in a certain way. And they want to be on his right and his left. It's told in multiple gospels. And Jesus calls them together and he sees what they're saying. And he says, you know that the rulers, there's our first word, okay? The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. There's the second word, rule and subdue. Exact same words, just turned into Greek instead of Hebrew. You know that the ruler, I, I just, I sometimes wonder, Jesus knew the scriptures so well. I wonder if he's totally got the Genesis 128 passage in his head. And he's like, oh, let's talk about ruling for a minute, friends. So here's the deal. You know how the, you know how the world works. But that's not how the world works, right? I'm creating a new world with my words right now, Jesus is saying. And here's the new world. Not so with you. Whoever wants to become great of you, among you, whoever wants to be a good ruler, must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, your ruler, your king, your leader, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, there's so much there this incredible language of partnership that looks like self-giving love and so sometimes that means putting our own needs aside and sometimes when it looks like caring for creation it looks like putting our own needs aside it doesn't we don't have to have the latest and greatest of everything we don't have to understand that every single project that that pulls a resource from the earth must be done if it's possible we, it, it, this is not, this doesn't mean that we don't make and create. Remember, he gave, God gave people the land to work and create. And remember, the Bible ends in a city. There's nothing wrong with developing in ethical and beautiful ways. But we have to understand that this, these are spiritual issues. And so we serve and we say, you know what, even if it costs me a little bit more, maybe it's worth doing that. You know, I... When Bethany and I had twins, we started with twins. First kids were twins. And, um, and now my views are a lot softer on this now, so please don't feel judged when I'm about to say this. But we hated the idea of all the diapers going into the landfill. We just hated that idea because two is double the everything. And so we decided to do cloth diapering with our children. Um, and, uh, and holy cow, was it some work. I don't know, like, not just that, like, I'm, I'm working on the, on the toilet and hooking up these hose sprayer things. It, it's not actually as gross as it sounds. Um, we, we found ways to make it quite sanitary and good. But it took some extra work. It took time and energy to do cloth diapering with our two twins. Um, but there was something about realizing that what we're doing had less of an impact on the environment and on our world, and there was just less trash somewhere that, that felt like it was a little bit of a spiritual thing. It felt like it was a little bit a, a step for us of trying to do something instead of just desiring to do stuff. It was also, it, it felt selfless, like it took work. <laughs> it took some sacrifice to stick with it. We even softened on when, when our daughter came along. So, so like I said, I'm not saying that that's the only way to go or anything like that, but it's just an example of like finding practical ways that we can, um, that we can figure out how to understand we're serving our world and we're serving each other in the same spirit all the time. Not by thinking that it's all ours to take over, but that it's ours to care for. So my last encouragement is just that um, you were made for this. Sometimes this feels like a lot of doing. We just gave you a message about go and do and care and till and all that. You were made for this. All of you. Uh, to work with each other. To reveal... God's kingdom in every single facet as his image uh, 
And this is where our church's mission emerges from, right? Like this is about, about caring for our world when we say that we want to make disciples um, and reconnect people to Jesus. That's about caring for one another in this kind of humble way. We talk about uh, creating communities that reconnect people to Jesus and reconnect people to each other because in our world there's just been this drift apart from relationships. And then we talk about reconnecting people to God's redemptive work in the world, whether that's caring in justice issues for, for one another or for someone who's suffering or brokenhearted or whether that's caring for the earth, whatever that looks like. We want people to find that. This is how we express who we are. But life is hard. I get that. Life is really, really hard sometimes. Uh, the invitation to partnership with God that is spoken at the beginning in, in Genesis 1 and 2 is not meant to be another burden. It's meant to speak purpose and value to you. Because so often we go through all this crazy stuff, we go through our daily lives, and we're like, what is the point? I'm just going nuts, and I'm just busy, and I don't feel like I'm actually accomplishing anything worthwhile. This is the reminder that when we move in the right direction, you are made for this, and this is about finding purpose and beauty and meaning. It's not just about more heavy burdens. You are so valuable in all of creation that God has handed this to us. God's handed us this task and said, hey, you're going to be my representatives in the world in every single way because I value who you are so much. I've given you my very image. And that should lift us up. It shouldn't feel like a burden. Um, and the fall, by the way, Dwayne's going to dive into a little bit of, of that story next week um, and, and some of the themes that we see God speaking in the midst of, of that in the latter part of, Gen or of Genesis 2 and 3. Um, the fall doesn't change God's plan of partnership. I think that's really interesting, and we need to realize that. The fact that we've screwed up, which was not a shock to the story, by the way, that human beings were selfish, um, that does not change God. Your, your brokenness and heartache doesn't make you unusable. In fact, your brokenness and your heartache might be the thing that makes you most usable to partner with God. So do not be afraid of the difficulty when you walk with Jesus through very, very difficult things. Don't be afraid that you are somehow unusable. It's the opposite. And you have to hear that many, many times before it starts sinking, but it's true. Of course, God does give us free will, so we have the choice each week. We have the choice each moment to say, do I want to partner with God or do I want to kind of go my own way? So I just encourage you this week, partner with God. It can look so many different ways, but it's always beautiful. Let's pray. God, you're good, and, uh, and, and we need your reminders in our lives that you actually desire to partner with us. So in this moment of, of silence as we prepare for uh, communion and then to go out into our world, I pray that you just open our hearts so that we might feel you lifting our burdens and speaking value to us, so much value that you entrust us with your earth and your world and all of its inhabitants. Help us to be faithful to that calling, God. Amen.